Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an old mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. Welcome to The Money Show on this Thursday evening. It's brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Welcome to The Money Show. Yeah, sad news today if you're a fan of Melissa's, the restaurant-come-retail outlet. It's it's filed for liquidation. We'll talk about that with the famous brand's chief executive, Darren Hill, this evening. Find out if he's in the market to pick up Melissa's to run alongside Tasha's. Or is he relieved that a competitor has gone in a tough economy? We'll chat to the Civil Aviation Authority in just a moment as to why they've grounded SA Express. MassMart, shambolic results out of that one. A warning of big profit falls there. Famous brands under pressure. Also today, we saw MediClinic taking strain and a whole bunch of others too. It was a grim day for industrial South Africa as the Reserve Bank declined to cut interest rates, saying that the next move in rates, unfortunately, before the year is out, will be up. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. So lots of food firms with results today. I'd like to know from you in our fast fact tonight, which giant shareholders are voting on whether or not it should allow its customers to use plastic straws. Increasingly controversial in the world. Which which, uh, food which fabulous food franchise is on tonight's Fast Fact facing straw outages? That is what we are asking this evening on our Fast Fact here on The Money Show. 702 and Cape Talk. The Money Show. Well, no sooner had the Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Gordon announced a new board for SA Express than the Civil Aviation Authority grounded it. It does make the tenure of Des van Rooyen at the National Treasury seem like it went on forever, doesn't it? I jest, of course, the new board will stay in place as SA Express is expected to get back on its feet, uh, revitalize the firm, or at least get it into a fit state to be folded into SAA. Let's find out from the Civil Aviation, Civil Aviation Authority Director Poppy Corsa this evening why they've grounded the entire airline. Poppy tell us why so um good evening uh, bruce the reason why we grounded uh, s-express uh, of course it, it, it is following an audit that we conducted uh, over the past few days uh, and i must also indicate that this was not necessarily a special audit but it is um, an audit that uh, we would ordinarily conduct uh, to any operator uh, and of course um we 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 have been um um, tracking uh, uh, progress uh, in terms of compliance issues with SA Express. Um, I'm sure you would uh, recall that um, um, in about uh, one and a half years uh, ago, uh, we were in a similar position um, and um, we, we still remained uh, concerned uh, about the state of compliance, although uh, they did demonstrate at some point that uh, there was compliance, uh, but we have since uh, found out that, uh, in fact, they, they have uh, requested from 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 some of them, uh, the the measures that they had put in place. So by and large, the grounding revolves around the issues of, of maintenance, uh, of of managing the entire safety management system, uh, to give assurance that uh, indeed an airline uh, is uh, operating uh, in a safely manner consistent with the prevailing um, standards and regulations. Uh, S-Express flies both turboprop and jet aircraft. Are both parts of that fleet um, lacking in safety standards? So we we have, uh, in fact, uh, suspended uh, the, the entire operator's uh, certificate, meaning that uh, both uh, 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 aircraft type uh, or the entire fleet uh, have been uh, grounded. I, I appreciate that, but are both uh, are both the the turboprop uh, fleet and the jet fleet are they both compromised, or is just one of those fleets compromised? And actually, you're more concerned about process um, than actual safety of the aircraft themselves. It is the entire safety system. So, without necessarily discriminating, um, you know, the the, the aircraft type, uh, because maintenance has got to be done uh, either way. 
Uh, so so uh, so our our issue is is around uh, um, uh, SA Express maintaining or rather ensuring that uh, issues of maintenance and, and the entire safety management system, whether we're talking about managing the issue of defects, uh, whether uh, the maintenance issues, uh, repairing of, of the snags and so on uh, is done on a continuous basis, we couldn't uh, necessarily get that assurance from them, which uh, 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 couldn't give us as a regulator comfort that indeed the issues of, 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 of safety and, 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 and maintenance are Do SA Express use SA technical SAA technical for their servicing? Uh, they have their own um, maintenance organization, um, which is um, uh, for, for for SA Express. Okay, so this doesn't then rub off. It doesn't have any impact then directly on SAA, which is good news. No, it does not. Uh, how what what does SA Express need to do to get airborne again? Because lots of people work for SA Express and are compromised by this. Lots of people have got tickets booked on SA Express, especially on the the short haul routes that nobody else covers. Um, wh- what do they need to do to become airworthy once again? So we'll have to um, redo the entire certification process. So we'll have to start f- from scratch, um, c- kind of like a new airline uh, to look. Oh. To look at the entire system up to a point we are satisfied that we can reissue uh, an operator certificate. Does this take weeks? Does it take months? It depends on on, on how fast uh, SA Express, uh, you know, will be able to comply. Uh, but uh, there is assurance from our side that uh, we are indeed going to make ourselves available uh, in terms of ensuring that uh, as soon as they uh, begin with the, 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 the compliance process, um, we, we are in fact uh, uh, working with them. Assuming they they pull out all the stops, um, when would you expect them to be airborne? It does take a couple of months. Certification okay. is not an easy process, so um, I, I anticipate that it could take a couple. Of, I don't want to tie a, a particular date because, uh, of course, they are not new in the game. So there they, they could be uh, a few things that they put in place uh, much speedily, uh, and we could, in fact, be phasing in. Um, yeah, some of, or rather expediting some of the processes depending on how well they, they demonstrate uh, compliance. The new board has got its work cut out for it. Poppy Causa, thank you. Director of the South African Aviation Authority, but indications are a couple of months. Looks like that they will be grounded for. Got to start the certification process right from scratch. So if you've got an SA Express ticket booked in May, June, July, you may want to make alternative plans. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. Today's famous brands results, the worst I remember seeing. Revenues did grow 23% to 7 billion rand, but profits down due to losses in its UK business, both Gourmet Burger Kitchen and Wimpy there struggling. Darren Hill is the famous brand's chief executive. Are you regretting heavily the day you ever heard the name Gourmet Burger Kitchen, Darren? Uh, good evening, Bruce. No, we, we don't have regrets at famous brands. I suppose hindsight's an exact science, so you know, one would prefer not to have to uh, answer some of the difficult questions. But no, I mean, you know, life is like that in business, and we've got, uh, you know, as I say, shoulder to the grindstone right now and just making the best of, of what we can. I, I think that um, it's a tough situation, but we, you know, we're well aligned to what's got to be done. I mean, Famous Brands wasn't averse to doing big deals relative to its own size. Famously, uh, when you were Steers, uh, Kevin Hedwick did the deal to buy Wimpy, and Wimpy was worth considerably more than Steers at the time. That paid off handsomely. Um, Certainly, Gourmet Burger Kitchen at over a billion rand was the biggest and most audacious deal in Famous Brands history. Um, When we look at it, we look at the operating environment, do you see any signs of a turnaround? Yeah, Bruce, it was, I mean, it was actually sitting north of that, nearly double that number, but it was, it was a big you know, number for our history. Uh, I said, yeah, look, we do see, we do see um, some green shoots, particularly where the competitive set uh, is reducing. So, you know, you only have to follow the UK press to see that the competitors are taking significant pain uh, and lots of closures, and we are definitely seeing around it. And that's been one of our challenges, that there's been, you know, dearth of competitors coming to the marketplace in the last two and a half years. Uh, and we see quite a lot of upside in various areas. So although it's challenging, uh, I would say that we are, you know, bordering on, on, on positive rather than negative in terms of our outlook and, and, you know, really think that there's a lot within our control that we can do despite the fact that the, the macro environment is obviously very tough and probably more uncertain than, than, than tough, which is probably a worse thing to be dealing with because consumers are, are not exactly sure what they should be doing in terms of, 
spending the money on or should they be saving it? And this is all to do with Brexit, of course. You did the deal around the time of the Brexit vote and the pound dramatically devalued as you did that transaction. But even though you did that deal then, you've had Wimpy in the UK for an awfully long time. That's been a constant struggle. And and Steers didn't take off as you, as, as you thought it might. And it's quite ironic, don't you think? I mean, the number of South African companies that have looked to diversify, particularly into the UK, where it's their home market that's actually carried the day, as you have in this result. Yeah, Bruce, I, I can't argue the point about, you know, the South African businesses' track record going into the UK is not easy. I think we've probably had a better run on Wimpy than maybe you giving us credit for. But, I mean, it certainly hasn't um, been a stellar performance, and we are used to stellar performances. So, yeah, it's a tough environment, but there are other, there are other side factors that, that, that really help. We do get a lot of learnings out of it. You know, we're not a globalized company, and we're up against global competitors, so we do get lots of learnings out of being in a sophisticated first world market like that. But I think your point is well made. I mean, you know, it's, it's a tough environment, and, you know, the, the numbers speak for themselves, and that's really what investors look for. Uh, and we've got a, a long way to go to prove that the, the, the business case is, is, is one that's going to hold up to our normal standards in terms of what Famous Brands has done. Might you be in the market to bail out Melissa's? You would have seen the reports today that they filed for liquidation. It's a very, very sad story. Cape Town originated company 1996, and um, they've expanded and they've stretched, and finally the, they, uh, they've broken. Um, Melissa's is no longer. Are you, are you in the market to buy at Melissa's? Yeah, Bruce, I must say, I only picked up the story late because I've, I've been busy a lot of the mm. day, and it's really a sad story, particularly, you know, given that it's an entrepreneurial business uh, and the founders are still running it. So, yeah, I don't know much about it. I mean, obviously, in business, you know, you'll always have a look. Uh, I don't know what the details are surrounding, but it is very sad, and particularly, you know, we, you know those kind of things are really actually a setback for the industry because our industry has been built on entrepreneurial activity. So it is very, very, very sad. I, again, I'm not sure... You know, if there's a, a place for it in famous brands, because it's quite a strong retail-driven business, yeah, um, and not just the restaurant side. So, you know, we're not necessarily looking to to penetrate that that market. Uh, I mean, but it is the sort of market that Tasha's serves. How's Tasha's holding up um, uh, as household budgets shrink and VAT rates go up and fuel bills increase, and South Africans feel a bit more cash-strapped? Yeah, I mean, all of our signature brands across that spectrum who are serving a similar customer, whether it be, you know, Tasha's or, or any of the others, have found it, you know, quite difficult. They've really struggled uh, with, you know, uh, dropping consumer accounts. People's frequency is just less. You know, people are not avoiding them, but they're just going less. Uh, and that, that was really the trend last year uh, and, and, has, and has come through. So, I'm, in a way, I'm, I'm not surprised when I hear something like that because, you know, the, the trend is certainly out there. And, and the top end of the market, if you want to call it that, have you know really struggled uh, over this past 12 months and i suppose this is one of the the, the side effects word of mouth the company in which uh, famous brands bought a stake a couple of years ago again is in that market that top end market of home catering office catering it must be struggling too on that basis yeah we saw a big cutback last year in our mainstream business which is around the the corporate catering particularly because you know individuals cut back but i can tell you corporates cut back even more and i think there was a brutal cutback uh, we're starting to see that ease but i mean that business uh, we've had some exciting other projects we've been working on, and we've launched a, a product called Frozen for You in the Gauteng area, which is a home meal replacement using the same back-end technology. And, and you know, so far, so good. Uh, some exciting signs coming out of that business. So I think it comes at the right time for, for that business where you know, the consumer is changing and evolving and corporates have cut back. Uh, but, I mean, hopefully what's going on in South Africa, that that, that business will come back, and we, we're well-positioned to take advantage of it. Ramaphoria, do you feel it? Uh, certainly at the consumer level, I mean, whilst people's wallets are not necessarily thicker, their, their propensity to spend has definitely come back a little bit, and I can only attribute it uh, you know, to positive sentiment. And you know, certainly customers are a lot friendlier to, to waiters, and I think tips are going up again, so yeah, there's no doubt. Uh, I, mean, I laugh, but it is such a good barometer of, of the human psyche, isn't it? People behave despicably in public when things are tough. Uh, Darren Hill, thank you. You need to write a book about that one day, Darren. You really do. Famous Brands Chief Executive Darren Hill. Coming unstuck in the United Kingdom where they've taken massive write-offs on that huge transaction on Gourmet Burger Kitchen. But that then news wasn't the worst today. Tiger Brands was pretty awful. And we also saw horrific announcement out of MassMart and a pretty bad one out of MediClinic. And the one out of Fushini Group wasn't good either. Graham Kerner with the Kerner Perspective in a moment. The Money Show. The Markets.
Graham Conner with the Conner Perspective. Uh, at the risk of being Pollyanna-ish, and I don't want to talk about markets just yet, I want to talk about the macro picture because I know you're a bit cross about today's uh, trading statements and results. I'm massively encouraged by the following things. State-owned enterprise boards, progress in the state capture inquiry, new head of the Hawks. Bizarrely, even the grounding of SA Express suggests that there's accountability back in the system. It's wonderful, isn't it? It is. Six months ago, we were all hanging our heads in despair, and now things are being fixed, and, you know, Northwest Premiers are, have resigned, True. and, uh, yeah, so there's a very different mood. Confidence levels are a whole lot better. So, yeah, we've actually got a hell of a lot to be grateful for. Yet, trading updates and results coming out from a whole clutch of industrial companies are blimmin' awful. Yeah, sure, Bruce, where to start? Um, famous brands, you've got to say, it was, it was self-inflicted. Um, like so many South Africans thought they could take on the world, I gave a colleague, young Reece, uh, um, some research work this afternoon because there was a comment right at the end in terms of the outlook statement about uh, the fact that it's a fiercely competitive market. So his, his research task was to price the burgers at Steers, McDonald's, uh, Burger King, and then to do a similar thing with the, with the pizza, pizza franchises. And the reality is Steers are a hell of a lot more expensive. And that's what I think is starting to come home. And, you know, the reason I'm grumpy is you eventually get to a point where as a company you say, okay, well, we've now got 2,500 or whatever stores. Are we going to try to carry on growing at 25 or 30%? Or do we actually just make peace with the fact that let's go into a different phase, let's extract the cash, find new markets. Mm. No, don't go and b- blow a billion rand on More. something you know, mm. that, 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 frankly. And such an amazing story, such a wonderful management team. And, you know, I mean, I have... You run out of luck eventually. I mean, we can't, yeah. pick, we can't pick a detailed fight with everybody. I want to get through as much as possible. Yeah. Because Tiger Brands, we're going to be talking to Lawrence McDougall, the chief executive, in just yeah. a minute. But uh, what, a, what a catastrophic uh, six months they've had. And it's not going to get much better in the next six because they're not going to be making Poloni anytime soon. Well, they're looking at reopening the plant on the 30th of September. Um, I don't know about you. I'm not going to uh, fill my basket with enterprise or, or renown. So I think that's a little bit delusional. But, you know, Bruce, negative volume growth in, in a lot of the categories. The only thing I could find that, that I got cheerful about was a marginal improvement in the gross profit margin. And then the associates seemed to do a bit better beverages maybe, but the rest of it looked awful, quite frankly. You know, negative volumes, even if you take you know, personal care, I think, um, 8% more volume and yet uh, 2% less revenue. This is not a happy story. And, and, and it comes back to what I've been moaning about in this sector for a while, particularly Tiger Brands, because they're trying to box in their premium market. The, the big stores, the shop rights, the pick and pays are moving own, own brand and consumers are under massive pressure. And it's a similar sort of story, I think, to what's happening in famous brands. Yeah, that, uh, the, that too. And then MassMart, if anything, was catastrophic on the day. It was MassMart mm. down 18% by the close to 115 rand a share. Yeah. Um, this is a, a company that's been holding up, holding up, holding up, and suddenly big restructuring costs coming through. They haven't grown as they had anticipated they would. And uh, it's all coming home to roost. So you go back, I can't remember, eight years ago when, when Walmart took the stake and we thought, okay, now Walmart are really going to change um, the, the landscape here. And I was joking with somebody earlier and saying, well, if you wanted impact in, you know, from Walmart, you should have owned NASPAS because at least they bought Flipkart and there was some, some move there. But it, it, it hasn't had an effect. And, and even if you sort of exclude the restructuring costs, you know, the earnings are going to be down 35 to 45%. It's, it's awful. And... Um, I think my, my real frustration today, there's some really good little companies that are trading, we believe, well below value. Whether you're talking about famous brands, Tiger Brands, MassMart, uh, MediClinic, you're talking about companies that are trading on 20 PEs and above, delivering what are, let's be honest, bloody awful results. And, the, and, 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 and unfortunately, I think it's going to set the mood for a little while in what's a market globally that's looking very skittish well the expectations market expectations on these companies it's not the company's fault that the market is expected them to keep growing at these 20 percent uh, 20 30 percent sort of growth rates unless these companies have teed themselves up um, and created the impression that they will continue delivering great results in which case it is management's fault but the market has been reluctant to go for the smaller companies because there isn't the liquidity there isn't the uh, you can't get in and out as quickly as you can in yeah. big companies if you've got big holdings in these firms and therefore in a very concentrated uncompetitive competitive JSE, you get you, nailed when the news is bad. And the greenhouse just grows and goes and goes. And I mean, so, so I think you're right. 
I want to like MediClinic. I actually quite like the story on a theoretical level, but you know these results were lousy. You know, you're talking about let's call it three percent uh, or four percent revenue growth, and constant currency was less than that. So you know they were sort of talking a more optimistic story. So when those results came out, that share also got smashed. I think that was also down eight percent. You know, let's bear in mind MassMart seventeen obviously steals the show, but even uh, you know Fushini also looked awful. I think they were also down just under eight percent. So problem is when you on these high multiples either because management is telling a good story or because the analyst body or the analyst uh, the investor body just loses their marbles um effectively what happens you pay 22 multiples for things that are not growing their profits and then suddenly those multiple the logical mm. multiples are are 10s or 12s and and that's why you see prices move as violently as they they do Graham Kerner with the Kerner perspective this evening in an unforgiving mood. There was one piece of good news today, and that is Capital and Counties, which owns London properties, one lot in Earl's Court and one lot in Covent Garden, and they're fundamentally different propositions. Capital and Counties decided to split that portfolio. That share price was up on the day 4%. Not much else was. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Today's fast fact question. I haven't got to that one yet this evening. Which giant shareholders are voting on whether or not it should allow its customers to use straws? A couple have come through with steers. But Tony, yep, McDonald's is the one. It's unlikely to be the final straw, literally. Uh, one small shareholder pressing the fast food giant to demonstrate leadership in the elimination of plastic straws. A guy called Keith Schnipp uh, wants the company to report on the risks to the business of continuing to use straws. McDonald's says the move is unnecessary and redundant. I wonder if it's going to live to regret that particular statement. Straws, of course, are really horrible things. I mean, I don't know. Do you remember paper straws? I'd hate to have to go. I'm sure we can have better quality paper straws than we used to a long time ago. But plastic straws are filth. They're horrible. We shouldn't be using them. Um, and uh, companies like McDonald's should be encouraged actively to not dole them out the way they do. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. Lawrence McDougall joins us now, Chief Executive at Tiger Brands on the line to us from Johannesburg. Um, the Listeria issue, probably the biggest consumer crisis in recent South African history. Uh, you reported your first revenue decline as a result of this, Lawrence, in 2010. Is there an acknowledgement yet within Tiger Brands that you are, in fact, at the epicentre of the Listeria outbreak? Hi, Bruce. Good evening. Um, yes, the um, $365 million, um, relates to abnormal items had a, a big impact on our headline earnings. Um, we are still waiting for the uh, results from um, the NICD. We haven't received those detailed um, results from them yet, unfortunately. So, no, I have no further progress for you on, on the front of whether our brands are directly related to the crisis or not. Have you made provision, though, for potential claims in the case of their, I think, the two class action lawsuits that look like they may be collapsed into one class action lawsuit? We've seen how um, the UN has labelled this the biggest single serious outbreak anywhere. Uh, we've seen 200 people dead, life estimated many patients. Um, we had a massive settlement from the state as a result of deaths, as a result of negligence by life Demani. If it is, in fact, proven that your factory in Polokwane, perhaps another one, um, were at the, at the core of this and people died as a result of consuming enterprise pa- uh, food, would you, have you made provision for that, for that possibility? So, Bruce, you're quite right. The, um, the two classes uh, have been uh, combined. Um, Richard Spur and LHL have combined. Um, that class hasn't been certified yet. Both sets of um, teams are collaborating very closely and moving um, at as fast a pace as they can. So it's a little bit early to give any indication what the uh, details of those class, those each, each of those classes might be. Um, we've made it very clear in our announcements and in our sense that um, you know all we can say at this stage is that we have appropriate. Um, insurance covering place for incidents of this nature. But until the, the details are 
republished and certified. Um, you know, we can't say more than that, unfortunately. You withdrew processed meat products earlier this year. The impact on sales was significant. Um, you talking about possibly restarting production in September. Will you retain the enterprise brand, the, the renowned brand? Yeah, Bruce, as a, you know, big food branded company, we're obviously doing deep research, firstly into the uh, industry to see what impact that's actually had on consumers and what are their preferences and uh, opinions about that. And obviously looking and then at the enterprise brand in particular, you know, so understanding the, the consumer and doing that research and getting those insights are the first thing we're going to do before we anticipate any type of relaunch of the enterprise brand. Oh, oh yeah, but but you're looking to return to manufacturing, whether it be under the enterprise brand or a new one or an alternative one, um, by September. Well, there's a few things. I mean, you know, we feel very responsible in terms of the 1,800 employees we have. So returning to production is a, a key priority for us. We first of all, you know, need to complete the remedial action in the um, in the factories, and also our teams are undergoing, um, you know further training. The other thing that we need to understand is that, you know, we're hoping that by then the Department of Health and the regulators have relooked the food standards for the ready-to-eat meat industry so that, you know, we can be sure that when we do release and until we understand those standards, we won't be. So, you know, we might be ready from a manufacturing perspective, but, um, you know, we need the regulators and the Department of Health to... Um, collaborate with us and you know that's what we're waiting for they had their first meeting on the 18th of may it was an internal meeting and uh you know so we anticipate in a call in the next few days or week to um start an industry-wide collaboration around the new standards for uh, ready-to-eat food processing in south africa in the meantime what happens to those 800 people who uh, are not gainfully employed yeah 1800 people bruce in yeah, 1800 yeah, yeah. Um, they are, as I said, they are still employed. We've kept them employed. They're working through the repairs and maintenance that we're making and structural changes that we're making in the sites and undergoing further training. So, um, you know, there's been no job losses on those sites and we feel that's a responsible thing to do. A couple of people have observed that Woolworths has had a bacon shortage for uh, ever since the Listeria outbreak. Were you white labeling bacon products for, for Woolworths? Uh, we did supply some of their products, Bruce. Um, you know, we've also had um, calls from the quarter industry. Uh, many of your, your listeners um, would understand that. Yep. And, you know, our brand um, is well known and, you know, we have a 25% share in that market within the 100-odd manufacturers that exist in South Africa. So the brand is strong, but, you know, as I said, we're going to get really good consumer insights before we make any progress with the brand but there is a strong demand for supply to be commenced um, out of the retail market we also uh, just looking across other product lines your, your premium segments are really struggling is that a factor of the economy is it a factor of retailers going to own brands what is really going on in the south african consumers basket right now yeah you know bruce it's it's actually been a um, quite a difficult trading environment. The, the big impact to revenue has been the deflation in the uh, maize category. Um, you know, maize price has almost halved in the last year, and that's been, you know, our revenue in the domestic market was down three, and, you know, 2.6 of that could be um, related to the maize price. The volumes overall in the domestic market were flat, and we maintained our, our operating margin. So, the core business actually didn't perform too badly, you know, and despite um, what was said a bit earlier, we had some categories that performed really well. Rice's volumes were up, breakfast was up, uh, groceries was up, beverages. Um, so we had a, you know, a balanced view on in the domestic market. We had the impact, as I said, on headline earnings by the recall costs and also our deciduous fruit business that exports into Asia and Europe. Um, with the strengthening of the RAND, had a really difficult time, which was a big hit to our overall business. Lawrence McDougall, thank you, Chief Executive of Tiger Brands. The Money Show, FAQs. Tendaya Manchimuli is economist with Liberty Retail South Africa. F FAQ this evening. We get answered this question often, Tendani. Um, yes. What is hawkish 
Uh, it's our most commonly asked FAQ. We've done it before, but please will you help us because the Reserve Bank governor today kept interest rates flat and he was hawkish. It means that while interest rates have remained unchanged, um, you shouldn't relax and think this is going to be the trend going forward. He kind of is warning us that going forward, should pressures go up, he doesn't rule out an interest rate increase. And I think he's saying that because while the pressures are balanced, um, you have uh, some supply side shocks coming up like... uh, possibly then in, an increase in electricity. We've already seen inflation going up today from the VAT increases that we've seen from the budget speech. And you have the rent uh, going to remain volatile for the coming future because of global developments, the trade uh, talks between the U.S. and and, uh, and China, as well as the domestic issues that are putting about pressure, I mean, on the dollar, I mean, the appreciation of the dollar. So, dovish is... Uh, gentle and nice and caring and indicating (laughs) that things will improve. Hawkish is, brace yourselves, I've got my claws out, I'm coming for you. Yes, that's what he means. <laughs> Tendani, thank you very much for clarifying. Thank Economist you. with Liberty Retail South Africa, Tendani Manchimuli, this evening on The Money Show. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. Welcome to The Money Show on a Thursday night. Pablo Fatidis this evening taking your calls on small business. Anything you want to talk about from a small business perspective. Also want to talk about the issue of companies not being paid by the state. And we've had so many promises for so long by government that it will do uh, 30 days and you will be paid as a small business. And um, threats to prosecute government departments that don't do this and state-owned enterprises that don't do this. And I'm not sure that there's been any significant improvement, if any improvement. I need you to tell me if you do business with the state are you being paid on time have you seen even the slightest improvement in being paid on time either on 31702 or 31567 um, and you can also give us a call on 011-883-0702-021-446-0567 Warren Ingram is standing by we'll talk to him about the silly mistakes that you inevitably made um, and if you have not yet started work you will make so listen to Uncle Warren so that you don't make the mistakes that we're going to tell you about in a couple of minutes' time. The Money Show, brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. This is The Money Show. I'm Bruce Whitfield. In studio with me, Yusuf Randera-Reese, who's winging his way to the United Kingdom this evening. Yusuf Randera-Reese runs a social impact business called the Awetu Project. He's been a guest on the show many, many times. What I love about what you're going to England for is to go to your alma mater, which is Oxford University, attended there as a Rhodes Scholar a decade or more ago. But you're going back as the old toppy at the tender age of 35 or 36 to go and teach today's youngsters about social impact. Yeah, and what's interesting, that conference didn't exist when I was there. I think the whole idea of careers in social impact was n- very nascent. And now it's a, they tell me there will be 400 people there, all young people, Oxford student types, who want to go into the social impact field. So they want me to come and give them some advice. That was quite funny because the invitation said, we want you to come and do the keynote at Oxford. And I thought, wow. And then it said, your time at USAID and the Gates Foundation really sets you up to do this well. And I thought... You got the wrong guy. I wasn't the first person to be invited to this, was I? <laughs> so, anyway, I'm going. But, but a decade ago, when you were at Oxford, you were part of the Oxford Business School, and you, you did a master's there. Nobody at the Oxford Business School thought of social impact. You then went across and you did a master's in African studies, and nobody in the African studies department at Oxford University, 500 meters apart, knew anything about business. And you've taken these two disciplines and married them, into something which is now considerably more commonplace than a decade ago. And that's, you were ahead of the curve on that. But is it quite fulfilling to know that you were leader, you're a leader in this field? Now, you know what actually is really fulfilling about going back is that when we, we actually pitched our way to, the concept of our way to, at, when I was at the business school, at this business plan competition, and the concept was there's wasted talent across Africa. And if we have new models for identifying and investing in talent, we can have a massive impact in business. And we were told in the finals that it was an aspirational idea. That, that is how they described it, aspirational move on. And I came back sort of fueled by irritation in some respects and passion for the idea, but also irritation that we were going to do something about this and prove that it wasn't aspirational. So it's really gratifying to be able to go back and say, look, 
this is the real business impact that we've had. These are the real people that we've helped. It was aspirational, but that wasn't didn't mean it was unachievable. Um, so yeah, it is. It's gratifying from that perspective. It's gratifying the, from the perspective that this impact field is opening up, and that you can have a role in in getting these young people thinking about how they use business for good. And, and it's the idea that you can make money out of running a business, but also have a positive societal impact. You can create the jobs. You can create the opportunities. You can create the skills environment for other people to create the opportunity for others. Exactly. And that's, I mean, for me, that's the, that's essential. I don't think that's the only way to solve problems. I think there's great social entrepreneurs in the country who think about what the problem is and who should and can pay for it. And that's how they think about it. It's not about using business for good. It's about finding where the money is to pay. For me, I want business to be at the core of, of solving the problem. I want the end user to pay for the most part or there to be a real commercial reason because then I can raise capital from commercial markets to fund it. You can scale it quickly. You're not reliant on a donor. Your customer is not a donor. Your customer is the end user who has the problem. And I like that. And there's some problems you can't solve like that. But for me, that's really important because it's how you can get real scale quickly. The one problem you're not going to solve is if that plane leaves without you on it. He's headed off to Oxford to go to <laughs> Oxford University, to the business school there, to tell them that the aspirational project became a real project that's having real impact in real people's lives. And there are going to be 400 people there to listen to him do it when 10 years ago he was the only guy in the room. Yusuf Randera Reese, the founder of the Awetu Project. The Money Show. Personal Finance. Personal Finance this evening brought to you by Ned Group Investments. See money differently. Ned Group Investments is a registered unit trust manager. Warren Ingram from Galileo Capital. The silly things people do when they start working. Well, they start working. That's a silly thing to do, isn't it? What do you mean? That's, that's a fabulous thing to do. People would love to be working. So, so No, no, that's, that's, the, that's the good part. Okay. What, what are the silly things? It's a universal thing. What are the silly things people do do? So to, to me, the, 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 the first one most of us do when we start working I'm, I'm putting myself firmly in this category is we, we get offered credit cards the banks sort of throw them at us once we once we start earning a salary and we and we have our first pay slip and you know and, and to this day for example you know on your online profile they'll they'll be telling you as you open up you know this is how you much qualify for extra just phone this number yeah oh. and it's and it's about you know 12 years of of what i earn so it's a you know it's it's it's, <laughs> it's only about 17 rand but 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 it's a it's a big number and and what's interesting about that is uh, you know a credit card is probably as close as you get to the financial equivalent of a of a seriously addictive drug because it's just so easy to use and it's very hard to actually track what you spend unless you do it very sensibly, unless you do it very carefully. There is nothing more sobering than putting your credit card away for a week, drawing cash from an ATM and spending only cash. Do that for a week. Don't change your spending patterns. And by the end of the week, you'll have a fundamentally different view of what of your credit card because it's just it's not money. It's just a swipe. It's fine. And and the issue when you start work is you, you you only have to pay that back in let's say a month month you know a bit more than a month month and a half so you you lose track and I mean I can remember this happening to me absolutely clearly it's, it's still one of the the most brutal lessons I've ever learned with my first salary was you know get this credit card spend you know freely and and as you say probably spent that entire credit limit in the first week then had sort of three weeks of just living off a, off my debit card for a little while and and then getting sort of two month and a half and going hang on. I'm, I'm actually, I don't really know what to do now. And, and then to make it worse, what the bank will do is say to you, don't worry, you don't have to pay off the whole amount. You can just pay off a portion, and it's roughly 10% of it. you go, oh, thank goodness, what nice people you are. And what's happening is you're paying, you know, more than 20% a year of, of interest on that money. So it's compounding at you, uh, against you at a rate that's impossible for you to earn an investment that will get, or have an investment that will grow faster than that. So, so this, what, what happens now is, you know, your, your, your addictive, you know, card suddenly starts to really bite you all over the place. So, so to me, that's the biggest mistake that, that, that people make in the, in the working environment is they get these credit cards, take the maximum credit limit that they're allowed because that's what the banks offer them. And that's what all their friends and family tell them to do as well. But I get rewards and I get points and I get miles and I get e-bucks and I get things. They give me stuff. The more I use it, they love me so much. They they throw rewards at me. Yeah, and and you know it's 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 it, that. So that's a beautiful hook, um, you know, and it, and it plays on our behaviour. Those are designed by psychologists, by the way. You know, so so it gamifies the way that way that we spend. It's actually incentivizes us and makes it a nice game. If you spend X, you get you can go to the next level and the next level and the next level. That's designed. That's 
it's it's actually manipulates human behavior for us to do that so so the issue for me are then, you suggesting that it's not in my best interest to do this for <laughs> i'm far from trying to be very blunt here <laughs> so 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 those those are wonderful um credit cards are wonderful tools if you use them correctly and i think one of them just one of the myths around a credit card you know so when you start work people say take as much credit as they'll give you um just in case something goes wrong you know, and, and that's okay if you're incredibly financially disciplined and, and you don't fall into that trap. Then, then having this accessible credit that you never, ever use for, for potentially the rainy day that you haven't planned for is that I, I can get the merits of that. The problem is we don't do that as human beings because we get all these rewards. And, mm-hmm. and you know, you, you, don't get it, you don't get rewarded for not spending on your credit card. You get rewarded for spending on your credit card. So, so my suggestion to people in that, in, that, in that instance when you're starting is get the smallest credit limit possible and and for example a week's worth of your expenses because i'm using your your cash your cash analogy here but just t- trying to refine it a bit to say okay so so if you start the the week and it's let's just say we start on a monday and by by wednesday you've clocked your your credit limit already and your card gets declined that that's a really firm reminder that you've now blown your weekly budget there and then and then what it forces you to do is at the end of the the, the weekend you top up from your from your cash account into your credit card you do it online so hopefully it's cost free and you do your next uh, your next week, and at the end of the last week of the month, you, you you clear that debt. So by the end of the month, you owe no no bank any money, and you've you've only spent within your budget. So that to me is a simple way of trying to control yourself and your spending. Once you until you've learned and you've got your training yeah. wheels and you know how to do it, if you know that's not going to work for you, then you adopt the Bruce Whitfield approach. You leave that card at home, and you operate on cash. It's just it's it's such a good exercise. Um, I would encourage everybody to do it, um, and just just try to live on cash for a week. If you if you're addicted to your credit card, and if you swipe because you're a very nice person, and when there's a round of coffees at the office, you say, you know, I'm going to get this because hey, I just pop it on my card. You don't you stop thinking, you stop engaging with the real hard, cold cash in the background. And that's very dangerous. Yeah. And, and I think you start to capitalize on your behavior in the right way. Johnny next door has got the most fabulous new GTI. <laughs> I drive a 15-year-old Skadonk. Yeah, I feel worthless as a human being. So what am I going to do to make myself feel better? Not ignore Johnny. I'm going to match Johnny's car. In fact, I'm going to get a GTI R, R with mag wheels just to upset it. And and I think that's the issue. In, in, um, and it's, it is it is universal, but I think somehow in South Africa we, we're we're more prone to it than anything else. We 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 judge our our relative self self worth in comparison to our peers by by the car we drive. So so it's fascinating to drive around apartment blocks around. I mean, you know, just around where I live, so around Joburg. And you see very small apartment uh, apartments, you know, one bedroom, tiny places uh, that probably cost in the region of 800,000 rand. And then you look at the cars in the parking lot and those are worth one, one and a half million. And, and that tells you our priorities are just not there, you know, as, as, as South Africans. So we love to overspend on, on our cars and, and that's a behavior that we have to change. You know? so, so to me, if you're starting work you know, public transport is just not a reliable way to, 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 to go for most people, in which case clearly a car, once you can afford it, 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 become, it goes from being a want to an absolute necessity. My, my suggestion there is you, you stay far away from the new car market and, 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 and you look at, you know, a good, reliable, safe secondhand car. And again, uh, don't, don't do the calculation by what you can afford um, on your budget every month and say, you know, the, the, the finance company, you know, that's trying to sell you the car says you can buy, you know, the most expensive car out. You go and buy the absolutely cheapest but safe car that you possibly can. And, and that's it. And if you set your standard to say, the only reason why I need this is to get me from point A to point B every day, not to impress anybody. And if you can live with yourself by doing that, which is an important thing to do, then that's how you treat a car. It's not there as a status symbol. It's not a measure of your self-worth. Somewhere where I think we're going to disagree, and my thinking was changed by Rudolf Boerter, um, the economist, independent economist. who He was talking about uh, renovating a property and all of this sort of thing, saying the advice he gave one of his kids was that you buy the best possible house in the best possible area that you, you can when, you, when you're starting out. And you stretch yourself um, as far as 
you possibly can within reason. And then when it comes to uh, improving the property, you improve the property. You don't upgrade. You don't sell and upgrade and sell and upgrade and sell and upgrade as so many of us have done and pay transfer duties every time and the removal costs and all of that nonsense and additional costs, which I know that you despise. Um, But you're also saying that we've got to be very careful about what we buy, when we buy it and how much we spend on it because a lot of people see the home as a store of value and therefore end up overspending on it. So Yeah, so we, we're probably not going to disagree as much as you think. I, I, my, my view is you, you buy the house that you plan to or the property that you plan to live in for at least eight years or more. So, so don't fall into that trap of going to buy the one-bedroom apartment the moment you start work because everyone's told you not to pay off some other landlord's uh, mortgage. So to, to me, that is the place that you rent. And, and then you do go and stretch yourself if that's what you want. If that's your priority, go, go and buy the house that you are going to stay in for a long period of time. So, so in a real office smart guy, I'm not going to start arguing with him because it's, it, is, it is good and sound. Because he will argue back. And, and he'll win. So until you give back. So I'll, until you give up. I'll have, to, I'll have to agree. No, I agree with him. But, but to me, the, the time frame is eight years. So if, you, if you're pretty sure that you're going to buy a place that you can grow into with a family potentially and all of those things, there are enough bedrooms or you can add enough bedrooms, that's no problem. I think the one that, that bugs me, though, with people, um, you know, start out with work and, and in, their, in their housing is let's say they, they listen to us and or listen to me and they're not going to buy their first apartment but then they go and buy furniture and they go and buy appliances and guess what the store makes it so easy to pay it off over six or twelve months so actually they can't really afford it uh, because the, the only way they're getting it is on credit and it's massively expensive they can afford it because the installments only three thousand rand a month and it would have cost them twenty thousand rand to buy they couldn't afford the twenty thousand so instead they're going to spend the three thousand rand over two years and they can afford an installment of 3,000 rand a month so that's okay I, I, I feel you know if you, if you start working out the costs and you look at the you know the policy fees and this and that all the things that get added on Oof. you end up paying two or three times the value of yeah. whatever it is that you've bought well not the value the cost the cost. <laughs> the, yeah, the cost. And and so the simple thing to do there is, you know, we have a very vibrant second-hand market for for for, for appliances and, and furniture, et cetera, et cetera. And no one's going to know, I promise you, no one's going to know that your fridge is one year old when you buy it. I went into a, for want of a better word, a pawn shop, P-A-W-N shop the other day, just to check it out and just to see what was in stock and what was on sale. And I was, I mean, I don't know about the mechanics and the workings and all of these sorts of things of the stuff that was on the, on the shop floors, but the stuff looked good. And I thought to myself, why would you go and spend five grand on a new washing machine or dishwasher when the stuff on this floor is under two grand a pop, provided, of course, you can have some sort of guarantee that, it guarantee that the stuff will work for, for a period of time. And, and I think that's the point, you know, and there, and there are many great, uh, you know, web-based businesses now that do this as well. So, so to me, this is something we should be doing, we, you know, especially when you start out, you know, to, to kind of furnish your entire place, uh, you know, is actually quite easy to do and probably at a third of the cost of yeah. what, of what it, people would do on new, and that's if they were buying cash. So, so to me, that's, you know, it's just some almost dumb pride that would force us to buy new when you can buy working goods that are, 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 are secondhand. Tell me quickly about insurance. A lot of people spend too much money on insurance, and some people don't spend nearly enough. So, so the, let's talk about cars in specifics. Uh, you know, you buy a car and you think, ah, oh, I don't need insurance for this. You know, I mean, you know, the car, I bought it cash. I bought a really cheap car and I've, I've paid it cash. What happens when you drive out of work and you, and you you, you cause an accident in a five million rand Rolls Royce, as an example. D- just understand you're liable for your car and the damage to the Rolls Royce. And the fact that the Rolls Royce is insured doesn't mean a thing. That insurance company is coming after you for the for that cost. Insurance companies don't mind paying their customers, but they really do want to cover that cost and they will come after you. They have entire departments that do that. And, and so so when you've got a, a car, and particularly if you have financed the car, you absolutely need insurance for, to, to replace your car and if you have um, an accident to repl- to re- do the repairs on the other In car. In fact, if you've got finance on the car, you're legally obliged to have uh, insurance on it because if it, it's not your car. It's the bank's car until you've paid for just it. Just amazing how many people still find a way to cancel it. Mm-hmm. And, and then just qu- quickly on insuring your life, uh, you know, if you're starting work and you You've got no dependents, nobody that needs needs to rely on you for 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 income, and you and if you if you're not around, and you've got no debt, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, then I would agree with w- with the idea that you don't need life cover. However, and I, I mean I don't want to sound like an insurance salesman. What you do need to do is ensure your income if you can't work anymore. In other words, you do have a car accident and you are not able to perform any kind of work again for the rest of your life, and you're only 25 and you started out oh. your career. That that's called disability insurance, and you definitely need that. So so to me. 
those are the two critical ones there. And then if you really, um, you know, if you really want to take your chances with with the government hospitals, well, good luck to you. To, to me, I think I would work, I'd go for a hospital plan as well. So those are the kinds of insurances I think you have to have. And then final one, I mean, plan as best you can your expenses. Know that you're going to have a holiday at some point. Um, you know, some people work very, very hard and never take a break, but um, there are some that uh, that do take holidays. And don't leave it till the last minute because yeah. it's going to cost, plane tickets going to cost you more, accommodation is going to cost you more, and you're not going to have saved the money for that because you've spent it already on the house and the car and the furniture and the insurances and everything else. But you still feel like you deserve the holiday because you've had such a tough year. And that phrase that people sort of laugh about, you know, fly now, pay later. I mean, to me, that is, again, it's, it's back to the credit card, in fact, because that's what you're, what you're going to end up doing. And, and so when you get your, your, your salary, set aside a little bit of money every month from that salary and, and work out what you want to spend on a holiday and start doing that from the day you earn your first salary. So the, I'm not saying don't have fun. All I'm saying in that instance is put it aside and then spend on, on that, those fun things money that you already have. Good, wise advice. And it's not only for people who are just starting out at work. Frankly, we all can learn from the guidance of Mr. Warren Ingram this evening, personal financial advisor, executive director at Galileo Capital. The Money Show. Small business. Small Business Focus brought to you by Chartered Accountants of South Africa, responsible business leaders, Pablo Fatidis from Auric Business Accelerator, in studio with us this evening. Payment by government to small businesses. Uh, Jacob Zuma promised it will be sorted. Sir Ramposas promised it will be sorted. Is it sorted? No, it's it's most definitely not sorted. And, you know, Bruce, quite frankly, it's not only government. It's government and big business. If you think about it, the structure of our economy, the shape of our economy, which dates back to 1648 when copper was first found in the Macquilland. And there's a wonderful book that gives you a feel of it called Digging Deep or Deep Digging by J. Um, I think it is Jay Davenport, yes. A yes, 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 yes. Very, very, very good book, Digging so, Deep, yes. Yeah, she's dramatized the mining industry and how the mining industry shaped our economy. It speaks very extensively about why we have such a concentrated economy. And in a concentrated economy, big business commands a lot of the value generated within the economy itself. And yet, Bruce, statistically, and these stats are available at the Department of Finance, at the Department of Labor, at every single department within government, the 2015-2016 stats show that 67-odd percent of private sector jobs are generated by businesses employing 50 or fewer people. Those are small-medium businesses. And those small-medium businesses, which occupy 25 to 30 percent of the economic pie, can only survive, thrive, and do well if there's open access, firstly, into big business, which includes government, and secondly, they get paid on time. And those two elements are not working well in our economy. And yet we all sit here in dismay saying, why is job creation or job unemployment still sitting at the 26% level? Right. Let's talk to Toby Chance, who's on the line to us from Cape Town. He's the DA Shadow Minister for Small Business Development. Toby Chance, are you going to pick up the baton on this one? Because it is a good stick with which to beat government, a failed department of small uh, business. Um, and it's yes. simply not doing its job. What are you going to do to shame government into doing what it's meant to do? Well, thanks for the opportunity, Bruce. And hi to you and Pablo. Um, yeah, we definitely are taking up the baton. In fact, we took up the baton a few months ago, shortly after the State of the Nation address, when President Ramaphosa um, pointed out that small businesses are being prejudiced by late payments, not just, as Fabio says, from government, but also from big business. And there's been a tendency for many, many years for small businesses to be bullied and to lie down and die, quite honestly, without really having any, any, anywhere to go and, and uh, ha have their case heard. So I've proposed three things to, to try and address this, over and above what the government has already suggested, which is to name and shame offenders in government, and also to hold offenders uh, to account. The first is the introduction of a small business ombudsman, which is a dispute resolution mechanism. Uh, the courts have proved to be too expensive, too remote, too, too difficult to get to. So the ombudsman bill, which I'm introducing um, as a private member's bill, will hopefully provide a cheap and easy way to resolve disputes, not just payment disputes, but all sorts of disputes. The other thing is to support the Prompt Payment Code, which is a private sector-led initiative from the National Small Business Chamber. And that is really aimed at private sector businesses uh, adopting a code of good practice to pay suppliers within 30 days at the, out at the outset. 
And then the third is a, a, a rather a technical mechanism which we refer to as supply chain finance, which allows a small business supplier to piggyback on the creditworthiness of its customer in order to um, be paid on time and for it to cost a lot less than going to the bank for a loan. I mean, these are critical things, Toby. How long is it going to take to get some sort of action on it? Because small businesses are falling over all the time. I don't know if you heard today that, I mean, it's no longer a small business in the sense that we understand small business, but uh, family-owned business of Melissa's has hit the wall. It's gone into liquidation. I mean, it's a, and not for completely different reasons. But, you know, even companies, well-established brands like Melissa's are finding it tough. Startups have got no chance. You're totally right. And I think what, what one of the misconceptions is when business owners talk about access to finance as being one of the major constraints to growth, they're actually referring to working capital, cash flow. They're not referring to investment capital. And cash flow fundamentally depends upon being paid on time. So um, we, we really do think that this is a critical uh, area for us as small business in the, in the parliamentary sphere to, 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 to tackle. And uh, so, you know, in terms of how long it's going to take, well, a couple of these things can be picked, you know, picked up and, and done immediately. Companies, I went to visit one of the largest re- retailers in the country last week. They're already using small uh, supply chain finance for around about 4% of their, uh, of their procurement. They can ramp that up quickly. So far as the prompt payment code is concerned, it's absolutely a matter of, of getting small business to pr- pressurize their, their customers to, to uh, adopt this practice. And I've got a meeting with business leadership South Africa next week to uh, to try and get big business to adopt this measure. So far as the bill is concerned, well, it all comes down to the ANC because uh, a, a DA private member's bill has never actually been passed by Parliament, such as the politicisation of legislation proposed by the, the opposition. But you're not proposing anything new. You're just asking the ANC to fulfil what the president, what two previous presidents of this president and the previous president have said they will do. We would hope that that would be the uh, attitude adopted by the, the governing party. We will wait and see. Toby Chance, thank you. I mean, it's nice, Pablo Fatidis, that um, we're seeing uh, parliamentary efforts to, to, to do what should be done as in the natural course of business because it's not happening. No, it's not happening. And I think that, you know, for, for an initiative like this to be passed, Bruce, you, you have to build up some sort of momentum behind it. You know, from a business leadership South Africa point of view, Bonang Mokhale has made it one of his tenants. It's one of the new tenants that really have reinvigorated that body itself. And my understanding is that the members of that organization, there are about 80, 90 odd of them, which are large, large businesses, make real commitments. But here's the thing. You make a commitment as a CEO, can it translate to the ground on the bottom? Yeah, can it? That is the big question. Um, When last did you go to the shops and buy some honey? Recently, actually. Did you look at the label? Yeah, it terrified me. You know, we have a massive crisis in South Africa, and this is one of the areas that really floors me. Here we sit in a country with 1.22 million square kilometers. We are ideally located and ideally positioned to build a massive honey industry. It's a premium product. It's a quality product. And yet we find ourselves importing this blended Quite honestly, Syrupy, poison yeah. syrup, which is not even honey. It's sugared, it's sugared water blended with honey that's mixed in quantities coming from China, from Brazil, and about six or seven other destinations and locations. Incredible retailers, good retailers, good branded retailers, Bruce, allow that product, that whatever it is. You nearly to, said a bad word, didn't I you? I nearly did. Yep. But they allow it to go onto the shelf with, with labeling that does not specifically state what it is. They do not talk about the syrup component mixed into the honey. It's fake honey and, and it shouldn't when, be allowed. And when you're buying it, you're paying a honey premium for it. You're paying a honey premium. Then there are a lot of people who buy honey. You know, this is all part of the kind of Tim Noakes, let's call it, diet revolution um, effort that's come out there where people are trying to replace things like cane, sugar, etc. When you're buying it, you're actually not buying a product that it says it is. That's false advertising. It's false retailing. It's false merchandising. Wouldn't it be nice to speak to somebody who's producing honey in South Africa? I think we should. Let's do that because Kim Francie is standing by. We'll talk to her owner of Honey & Co. in Bryanston in just a minute. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Kim Francie on the line to us from Bryanson, the owner of Honey & Co. You're producing raw honey. What does that mean, Kim? You whip it out of the hive and stick it into a container and flog it. 
Hi, Bruce and Pavlo. Thank you for having me. Um, yes, basically, we take it straight off the hive. It goes through a sifting process and straight into the bottle. Now, what's the difference between what you're doing and everybody else is doing in South Africa? Well, our honey is 100% raw, unpasteurized, and local, which is all the, the good things. <laughs> and what difference does it make if I buy your honey or I buy the sort of schlop that um, Pablo was just talking about? Well, ours has got all the natural enzymes and proteins and antibiotics. It's honey is, raw honey is absolutely incredible for your body, and it's, it's so natural and so good for you. When you're buying honey at the shop that may be from China or from uh, imported from all sorts of other places, you don't really know what's going into it, and that can be slightly worrisome, especially if you are on a diet and you're eating honey specifically because you don't want to take in too much sugar. Now, okay, okay, now, Kim, I mean, most people phone us when they've got a problem. What problem (laughs) can you possibly have if you've got a great product in a market which is deluged with rubbish? You've got a great positioning. What's the problem? So uh, we have a very big contract that we may be uh, entering into. Um, and I mean, we only, uh, our company is only six months old and we only really have the online store. Um, and this would be to supply quite a lot of honey. Um, how, how much more? I mean, 10 times more, 20 times more, 30 times um, more. I haven't quantified it <laughs> like that, but I'd say about 10,000 times more. Oh my goodness me. Okay. I mean, <laughs> and, and bees don't respond well when you squeeze them and try to get more honey out of them. So, so, so what is the, what is the problem that you're wanting Pablo to help you resolve other than find more bees? Um, so basically I'd like to find out the best way for me to fund this project because we don't exactly have a lot of capital and with our online business, uh, you know, it's easy to come in and out, you know, so yeah, it's basically funding. (laughs) Uh, And what do you need the money for? I mean, do you need to acquire hives? Do you need to subcontract to other raw honey producers? What do you need the money for? Um, so basically we need to build a factory first of all. Um, if we, so two parts of the, of the project is either we'll be supplying bulk or we'll be supplying bottled honey. So we, if we are doing the bottled route, we're going to need a factory with fully functioning, uh, processes and systems, uh, to make sure that we, you know, health and safety approved and everything. So it's basically for that. And then of course we have a small, um, network of local beekeepers that help us keep up a demand. So we'll need to acquire the honey in order, in order to buy it and then to present it to our clients. It's a wonderful problem to have, Kim Francie. Thank you very much for talking to us this evening. The owner of Honey & Co. Have a look at the website. There's a bee. If you squirmish about bees and the bee's got pollen laden on its legs. Oh, it's gorgeous. Um, I just don't want it buzzing around my head. Um, <laughs> nice. Kim's got a nice problem, Bob. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful problem to have. But not a simple problem to solve. It's quite a complicated problem because if, if it's going to be 10,000 times more than what you have built your current business to deliver, then you've got to just tread a little bit more cautiously. So the first questions I'd be asking, Bruce, is, well, what's the agenda behind this whole transaction? Why did you start the honey business? Did you start it out of necessity? Was it interest? Most importantly, the reason I'm asking that is because where, do you, where did you intend the business to go? Was it a hobby that has suddenly now kicked into having and holding the potential of being a business of your dreams? That's going to talk about your state of readiness. If you've been supplying online, the suggestion already there is people like you and I are predominantly buying the honey. We might buy maybe 500 grams or a kilo a, week, a month, whatever the case is. There, it's about getting the honey in. You can do packaging in a very simple manner. You do the transaction by email, largely online. It would just be the email. The, the, the online shop would be the interface. You supply it, you courier it, and off it goes. That's easy. 10,000 times more would suggest that there's a massive customer on the other side. They're either going to be sending directly into the chain store environment or into a massive distributor. And that, Bruce, is a completely different business because, first, where are you going to get the supply? Honey & Co., the brand that you spoke about, the brand that you like, the brand that appeals, must be one of the reasons why the retailer or why the wholesaler, whoever it might be, would want this. If they want it, 
how are you going to maintain that standard of quality and how are you going to maintain the integrity of the supply? The moment you start moving from, let's say, let's say they're doing a thousand, a thousand kilos a month. I don't know how much they're doing. So let's say, let's say they're 300 active hives. If you're going 10,000 times more, you're going to be talking about an extensive hive network. The moment you start supplying from different providers of honey, they're different grades of honey, they're different flavors of honey, they're different qualities of honey. Then there's the supply chain to get from the source you, you know you're putting into your factory. No, no, but we're going to have a strategy behind Please, it. Please, you've got three minutes for your strategy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then it comes in. We've organized supply. It comes in. When it comes in, you've now got to get it out. You've got to get it processed and, and get it out. In order to process that volume, you need the factory. So here has to be the strategy. I really hope that this big client is a patient client, that this big client is really engaging with this organization because they believe in the founders, they believe in the brand, they believe in the quality, they believe in what they stand for, and that they're going to use a quality product made in South Africa with a South African story as part of their marketing opportunity to get it flying off the shelves through their through whoever their customers it's, it's are. It's a great opportunity for supplier development. We've seen so many great relationships between retailers and I don't know who the client is, but Woolies, for example, talks about how they have helped farmers develop and how they've helped farmers grow and they've grown in partnership. It's got to be about partnerships and it's got to be about supplier development and they've got to be patient. They can't expect the 10,000 kilograms or whatever it is to arrive in month one. If you're going to demand that, this project's dead. Completely. And you won't find anyone who will fund that. So the thing is, a business is like a person. You are born, you're a baby, you become a toddler, you become a kid, you become an adolescent. And every stage of your progress sees you establish different bone density and muscle structure so you can bear more weight. If this is a good customer and they can engage with the customer properly around this and say, instead of giving us all your stores, let's start with 10. Let's build some muscle. Let's prove the fact that we can source effectively, that we can maintain quality, that we can distribute to you. On the back of that and that performance, then let's move into a contracted environment. Then on the back of that, knock on the door of your first funder. And if the supplier is not going to do that for you, then don't do it. Don't do the deal. Absolutely do not do it. Absolutely do not do it. Do you remember we did a show about a year and a half ago and it was called When It's Too Good To Be True. It's too good to be true. This may be too good to be true. It may be too good to be true, and it might ruin the beginning of what sounds to be a very exciting business here. Pablo Fatidis, that's the buzz this evening with small business here on The Money Show. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Well, that's it from The Money Show. Tomorrow, we've got the Brutal Biz Quiz. We've got the best bits, plus everything else that's happening. And if it's half as busy tomorrow as it is today, I don't know how we're going to fit it all in. It's been a very busy day. Thank you for listening to The Money Show. Good night.